The scripture for this morning's message is found in the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to, the, to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Father, I pray that there would be a a trembling boldness in your people here at Bethlehem. This is the one to whom I will look, you said in Isaiah, to the one who is humble and lowly and who trembles at my word. And here's Peter having been blessed with the greatest financial boon he ever got. And it scared him to death and made him ask you to leave. Lord, help us to understand what's going on here and to be moved by our undeservedness. We don't deserve any of the blessings you've given us. And we come trembling before you, asking that you be our teacher now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I chose this text as part of a little mini-series here between Romans 8 and 9 as we make a transition as a church from one worship site on Sunday morning to two worship sites on Sunday morning. My desire is that in these three or four messages, perhaps two on this side and two on the other side of the transition, God would enable us to interpret what's happening at Bethlehem in biblical context and that it would be given meaning that flows from the aims of Jesus. I would like us to see this move that we're making in terms of the aims of Jesus Christ, not just any particular human aim or goal. Now, there's some of us who believe that God purposes to cause this move to be a part of a continued 
remarkable growth that Bethlehem has experienced over the last couple of years. Um, we all know that God is sovereign and he can blow that away in a minute. He just blow that away in a minute and we would be no more. But it appears that for a season, the wind of mercy, and I say mercy, is at our back, for which we should tremble. Let us work while it is day, for night comes when no church will be able to work anymore. There's no guarantee that the wind of mercy will be at the back of sinners to produce the kind of growth that we have experienced. And therefore, all we want to do is be good stewards while God is pleased to say, move. And we will try to keep in step with his spirit. My burden today is to so preach and to so pray that what happens at the North Extension in two weeks and what happens downtown will be a new fruitfulness in evangelism. That's today's desire. A new fruitfulness and courage in personal evangelism. That is, more people coming to Christ, more people moving from death to life, more people moving from darkness to light, more people moving from the power of Satan to the power of God, as Paul describes it in Acts 22. Churches can grow without this. We have largely grown without this. Nothing to be very proud of, I think. That's not the best kind of growth, to grow without fruitful evangelism. God wants us to to more boldly, more fruitfully love people who are not in any church or in any faith into the family of faith. And disciple them and make them into people who spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. So let's watch Jesus get us ready to do this in Luke 5, 1 to 11. I think what's going on here in these verses is that the way Jesus acted and spoke and the way Luke has written the story, both of them are conspiring to turn a miracle catch of fish into a parable about catching people for the kingdom. That's what's going on here. This is intentional. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do all this and then at the end say, oh, this is a cool illustration. He, he's planning, he's designing what he's doing from beginning to end. I'll try to show you in order to teach something to us about catching men for kingdom purposes. So let me state the point of the acted out parable as I understand it. Here's the Here's my summary statement, then I'm going to break it down. By Jesus' power and authority, multitudes of people will be caught for eternal kingdom blessings by the followers of Jesus who teach the word of God, obey the commands of Jesus, humble themselves, and treasure Christ above all. That's, the, that's my summary statement of this story. I'll say it again. By Jesus' power, power and authority, multitudes of people will be caught 
for eternal kingdom blessings by the followers of Jesus who teach the word of God, obey the commands of Jesus, humble themselves and treasure Christ above all. So let's take it a piece at a time here. Jesus is saying here that multitudes of people are going to be won by his power and authority. He's teaching the word of God as he gathers and the people are coming. You see this in verse one. Then you see in verse three, he intentionally chooses a fishing boat to get into to do his evangelism, to do his his proclamation or his teaching of the word of God here. That's a setup. That's a setup for what he's about to teach us about teaching the people. He got into a fishing boat. And then in verse 4, he tells Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night catching nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. Now, this interchange between Peter and Jesus is to make crystal clear there aren't any fish down there. We fish this place out. We know fishing. You're a carpenter. And the point here is Jesus is is positioning them to do in fishing what he's doing to this crowd from a fishing boat. This word of God is a line and this net's about to go down or another line. He's, he's setting up. A teaching moment here, a parable, in order to say something about their involvement in what he's doing from a fishing boat. Verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. So you've got broken, you've got nets that are breaking, you've got boats that are sinking. There's a point here. This is the most phenomenal catch these men have ever had from a place where there are no fish. They have worked this thing all night long. This is not, this is not where you do evangelism. It's fruitless here. The point is the power of Jesus, is it not? The point is the glory of Jesus. The point is not human strategies, human nets. They got them fixed just right. They dropped them just right. The point is Christ said, drop them. Christ said it, drop them. And that, that caused a catch. There weren't any fish here. They had worked this thing. They were tired. Now, the word translated, what, a great amount, great number of fish, is translated almost everywhere in the book of Acts, multitude, and it refers to people. Over and over, a dozen times or more in the book of Acts, this word is multitude of people. And that's exactly where Jesus is going. Verse 10 Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. So what I've just illustrated for you here with my power and my authority from this boat where I'm teaching people, but you're catching fish. I'm teaching you something about your partnership with me now in doing what I'm doing when I'm gone. And that's exactly what we read with this word in the book of Acts. Same author. Chapter five, verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord and multitudes, both of men and women, 
Chapter 14, verse 1, in Iconium, a large number, that's exactly the phrase that's used here of these fish. The large number of people believed both Jews and Greeks. And of course we know that catching men doesn't mean catching them to kill them and eat them. The analogy is not between what you do with fish when you catch them or what you do with men when you catch them. The analogy is between trusting Jesus to gather fish and trusting Jesus to gather men. That's the analogy here, the comparison. So, summarizing the first part of my point, by Jesus' power and authority, multitudes of people will be caught for eternal kingdom blessings. Next piece of the point, by the followers of Jesus. By the followers of Jesus. Verse 10, again. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. Just as James and John and Peter and the others were the human means of pulling the nets in, they will be the human means of Christ's pulling the nets in of the multitudes. It's Jesus' power and authority, and it's their evangelistic work force. Converts to Christ come by Christ's power and by man's agency. I was down in Bryan College at Dayton, Tennessee, and a, a man from out of town was there listening to these talks that I gave to the students. And, and I was obviously coming across as a Calvinist because I was lifting up the sovereignty of God so highly. And he came up afterwards and he said, with a kind of strange smile on his face, like, this question is going to stop you cold. Uh, why would you pray or evangelize if you believe in the sovereignty of God? Which, which is like saying, why would you drop the nets if, if Jesus is going to put the fish in the net? What a dumb question. <laughs> I preach the gospel because Jesus has appointed people to be saved by the preaching of the gospel. This is not hard. We make it hard. You drop the nets because Jesus said drop the nets. I'm going to use nets. I can make fish jump in boats. I can do that. I can sink your boats by just having them jump in. I can have them swallow a coin and jump on a hook. And I can do fish. I know how to do this. But I'm not going to do it that way. I'm not going to do evangelism that way. I'm not going to have them just... Walk to church and say, here we are, save us. I'm going to have you drop nets. So it is by, by the followers of Jesus that the power and authority of Jesus will gather the multitudes. Now we're ready for my four phrases, which I get from this text, describing the kind of people who do that. Now this is where we are at Bethlehem. Half of you, God willing, are going to Roseville. And another half, or I hope a little less than half, stay here. More room up there than here. In two weeks, that's the way it is. Now, I hope that what that's all about is increased power and fruitfulness in evangelism. So that the growth of Bethlehem here and there will be by people passing out of darkness into light and death into life and Satan to God question is then, what will it take? What kind of people must we be? And 
this text gives four descriptions of that kind of people. Number one, we will be man-fishers who teach the word of God. I say it like that. You could use the word explain the word of God. And I mean over lunches, on telephones, in letters and emails, or in a small group setting who explain the word of God. You see this in verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So these people, these crowds, these fish are coming to the word of God. If, if we dare, dare the analogy, the bait is the word of God. And they're coming to the word of God. Now, I'm not really too afraid of using that analogy that the word of God is the bait. Bait is not a... I don't like the word bait. I don't like to bait people. So it has connotations that make me nervous. But there's something about this phrase, word of God, that honors people and honors God. Because if the bait were a jingle, let's get a clever jingle to get people to Roseville. Let's let's go out and, and do some clever little thing to suck people in. Then Then we would... The word bait would be used. It's not bait. But if, if we preach or speak and explain, teach the word of God, what we're saying is, I want to command the truth to your mind and I want to command the glory of the truth to your heart so that your mind will make a free and rational embrace of it and your heart will leap for joy over what you have seen with your mind. If we talk about bait in those terms, it doesn't have any of the manipulative effects. And so what Jesus is doing is drawing people. So you drop the word bait, maybe. Just drawing people with the word of God. That's what they're doing here. They're coming. You see, verse 1, they're coming to the word of God. And then he spots a boat. So Jesus is, what an amazing person. Oh, we should be more like this. I mean, what would you do at work to be this creative, I wonder? He spots a a fishing boat. The crowds are pushing him, pushing him. There's a thousand people, maybe. And he's near the water, and he doesn't want to be this closed in. He needs... And so he signals to Peter, let me teach him from the, the fishing boat. And then it says, verse 2, he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing... Their nets, it's over, no fishing going to be done here. And he got into one of those boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little way out from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. The people had gathered as he signaled the word of God. Now he gets in a boat to set up the illustration. And I want to underline the word He taught them. Now, that's what he does to signal to Peter, James, and John what they're going to do when they become man-fishers. You're going to be teachers. You're going to be explainers of the Word of God. Now, why is that important? Then and now. It's important now because we live in a culture where nobody 
knows what God is like anymore. I mean, when I hear post-9-11 God talk, I want to throw up most of the time. It is so utterly mealy-mouthed, with no contours. It's just a big fog in the air that Hindus and Buddhists and Jews and Christians all are happy to talk about. I want to say, does anybody know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? The God who has contours in the Old Testament with wrath and judgment and mercy and patience. We've got to do some explaining. And we don't, they, the world doesn't know what the law is. They don't know who Christ is. They don't know what the gospel is. They don't know what faith is. They don't know what happened on the cross. They don't know what real love is. They don't know what heaven is like. They don't know what hell is like. There is not a lot you can stand on out there. And therefore, evangelism these days has got to be pretty meaty. And don't rush it. You don't, don't worry. Don't feel like, oh my, I've got 15 minutes over lunch here. Don't feel like you've got to pack a systematic theology into that. Just know God will guide you as you say, where are you? What do you understand? Draw people out. Share your world and life views with each other. And take your time and be in their life like... What a great word Eric gave us a few weeks ago about his own conversion. Eric Hyatt, a new associate for missions, he, he said, first they invaded me and then they invited me. They invaded my life. They loved me. They invited me. They took me places. They folded me in. And then they invited me to Christ. And I encourage invasions and I encourage invitings. Listen to how Paul did it in Ephesus, Acts 19.9. Paul reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus, reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That's teaching. He reasoned. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He stayed in one place explaining, explaining, explaining to these pagans who didn't have a clue what a Jewish God was about or what a Messiah was about or what a cross was about or what a resurrection was about or what faith was about or holiness was about or the Holy Spirit was about. No, anything. Two years and one version says five hours a day. What a way to plant a church. What a way to plant a church instead of a kind of a pop and a few jingles and gather a crowd. and you, People don't know much about the Bible. And therefore, I see him saying, you're going to be man fishers. And I've shown you here a little bit of how to do it. Proclamation is important. Teaching is important. Lifestyle is important. But let's be sure we explain to people the truth. Find ways to do it. Dream it up. Be creative. Number two, the second trait of man fishers here is they obey the commands of Jesus. Verse four, Simon answered and said, Master, Jesus told him to let down the nets. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. 
Now, if Simon had not obeyed, I doubt that there would have been a catch. Jesus can make the fish jump in the boats, but he probably wouldn't have. He's calling us to be instruments in his man fishing. And he gives Peter as an example, not a very good one, but a pretty good one. Not very good, just pretty good. He's not very good because he he didn't get very enthusiastic about this command. He didn't say, what a great idea. And you are Lord. And if you say do it, it's bound to work. And so I'll do it. That's not the way he responded. He responded with skepticism. And frankly, he was tired. He had fished all night long. Now, there's a lesson here. Um, a lots of lessons here. There are no perfect times for evangelism. Never. Never. I've never been in a time which I said would be, this is perfect. I've got the right amount of time. I've got the right safety. I've got a listener ready to go. I've got everything I need. I've got my Bible in my pocket. I've got, this is perfect. It's never been perfect. And it never will be perfect. And it wasn't perfect here. And Peter's pointing that out to the Lord for his information. We tried this. We're fishermen. You're a carpenter. There are no fish down there. We tried all night. We're dead tired. And you're telling us to go fishing. We. Okay. How many times I have heard testimonies in this church from you to the effect that last week you found yourself in a situation and it wasn't perfect and you didn't know what you were going to say, and you ventured it, and God blessed. Friday morning, in the prayer meeting, one of the brothers, I was going to point to him, because he sits about right there. Mike Haas asked him, he, he, he said, told us a story about how he just got into a situation with a guy at an eating place, and after a while, led him to Christ, and he prayed to receive Jesus. And another guy standing around, he comes over, and uh, he almost gets there. And he asks us to pray for Doug and Mark. And so, it's happening, and it's never, never optimal. And it wasn't here. And oh, how many excuses, how many excuses we find. So he obeyed imperfectly. And isn't it good that Jesus honored his imperfect? I mean, he didn't throw Peter overboard, which he could have done because his attitude was so unenthusiastic about Jesus' suggestion. And he blessed him and he will you. So don't ever think, oh, shoot, I I was crabby this morning with my wife. And so I'm an absolutely unworthy witness. Well, that just about rules out every day. <laughs> One way or the other. So, Peter is a wonderful example. In fact, all the way through his life, Peter's a mightily encouraging jerk of a Christian. <laughs> and I'm so thankful for him. Third, we will not only teach the word of God, and we will not only obey the commands of Jesus, we will humble ourselves 
You see this, don't you? And we picked up on it in the worship time this morning. You were listening. When Peter and others saw the blessing, and Jesus had given them blessing now. This is such a strange response to blessing. You might think this would be the response of Peter to a really loud, condemning sermon to sinners. Y'all sinners, you don't deserve any fish. So repent. And then they tremble and fall down and repent. That's not the way it happened. And I'll bet, if you're like me, the times when you have felt most broken before God is after he did something spectacularly undeserved for you. And you just, you just cry. You just cry because he's so kind. When you deserve to be just swept overboard, he blesses you with something. And it makes you want to cry, which is what happens here, I think. Verse 8, right in the middle of verse 8. Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Oh, we need to see this as we go to Roseville. As we grow, we need to see this. We need to feel this as a church. Can we feel this together as a church as we grow? Let me put it in a stark contrast. There's a theology, I think, probably, or a heart, and we all struggle with this, that would say, wow, look at the blessing we have received from Jesus. Biggest catch of fish we've ever had. We could market this. Let's call it uh, Trust Jesus, Get Fish. Hey, hey, let's go to Roseville. That's a different demeanor than Peter, isn't it? Seems like a reasonable response. You've been blessed. Look at these fish. He blessed you. Blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm. We've got a God who blesses. Yes, sir. Bigger cars, bigger houses, nice clothes, nice growing income, lots of retirement. We've got a God who blesses. Let's go to Roseville. Let's expand. Everybody want to come to this. Go away from me, Lord. I'm so sinful. What a strange response to grace. So, can we learn something here, Bethlehem? Can we be broken-hearted people? I'm not going to let you say, inactive or unfruitful people. I just want to say, can we be Broken-hearted people. Can we respond to grace the way Jonathan Edwards and how I wish every person at Bethlehem would read Jonathan Edwards' book, The Religious Affections. Nothing more important, I don't think, outside the Bible has ever been written about the human heart than Jonathan Edwards' book, The Religious Affections. And it's for sentences like this that I say this. Here's what he wrote. 
A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. And their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. And leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. So if you want to bear fruit, wouldn't this be a good place to start? Let's just start where Peter started. Lord, I'm not worthy of your presence. I don't deserve those fish. We don't deserve this building. We don't deserve that building almost paid for. We don't deserve the way things are working together here in unity in this church to put two sites together. We don't deserve the kindness that we've been shown by Northwestern College. We don't deserve the fact that John Govey has appeared on the scene in the nick of time to help work out technology. We don't deserve the fact that the giving is 20% ahead of last year. We don't deserve any of this. And the effect it should have is not to make us triumphalists, but to do what Peter did and say, Lord, I don't know where this is coming from except the cross where you died for people like me. And I tremblingly say, now, Jesus didn't let him stay at the point of go away, go away. Which leads us to my last point. This is number four. The people who are going to be fruitful in personal evangelism teach or explain what God is like, the word of God. They obey the commands of Jesus. They humble themselves. And now, fourthly, they treasure Christ above all. Look at verse 10 in the middle. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus knows he's going to die for Peter. says that very plainly several times in his own life. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many like Peter. He knows he's going to die for Peter. And therefore, he's got Peter's sin problem solved. Peter doesn't understand that very well yet, but he's got that solved. And so he says to Peter, yes, I'm holy, and yes, you should burn to a cinder in my presence. But... Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He takes the paralyzing fear out of his life and leaves behind not cockiness, but broken-hearted boldness. Cocky witnesses contradict the message of grace. Broken-hearted, trembling Courageous witnesses. Can you put those two together? Courage and contrition, brokenheartedness and boldness. Can you put those two together in your life? They are to be together. A spirit of lowliness and meekness and childlikeness with an undaunted courage that moves right into the most difficult situation and does not pull back. And is ready to lay down its life in order to bring people into the knowledge of Christ. Well, that's what he does for him here. 
And here is Peter's and James and John's response. When they had brought their boats to land, see verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That is, God, by grace, through brokenness, made them cherish Christ above everything. Is that where we are as a church? That's what we exist for. When we talk about a passion for God, we mean a cherishing, a valuing, a treasuring of God and Jesus Christ in such a way that everything, like Paul says, is counted as rubbish. This is an early illustration of what's coming in imperative form in chapter 14, verse 33. Unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. And we read that and say, oh, that's heavy, that's weighty. We've got to go back and read this story and how grace informed that. The fish were all there before that was required. The blessing and the mercy came and Peter was on his face. I don't deserve you. How can you stand a person like me who's so half-hearted in my obedience? And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I've got that taken care of. I'm going to die for you. And now come on and join me in this great rescue operation. And they see enough, little enough to say, we'll leave this. We'll leave this catch of fish. We'll leave these boats. We'll leave our dad, Zebedee. And here we go. So as we go to Roseville... Let's go to Jesus. He's more precious than anything that you could have. Let's, let's be a people, whether you're in a ring suburb up there or whether you're downtown here, let's be a simple people. Let's be a wartime people. Let's think through what that sentence, renounce everything you have. Renounce it. That is, don't be held by it. Don't be owned by it. Don't be mastered by it. Don't let it be your God. Use it for the kingdom purposes. Here's my prayer. I'll put the main point into a prayer. May the power and authority of Jesus Christ move multitudes of people into eternal kingdom blessings by means of his disciples at Bethlehem who teach the word of God, obey the commands of Jesus, humble ourselves and treasure Christ above all. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. There is no other name under heaven. There is rest for my soul, for the wounded made whole and the captive set free and forgiven.